Uh, this week, we're in week four, I think it's week four, of our new series called Theology for Ordinary People. And uh, I've been really enjoying it. I hope you have too. But the, the whole idea of this series is that we, would, we can get some clarity about you know, what it is that we really do know and, and believe it as Christians, because we should. We should be able to articulate a good theology and understanding of God, you know, theology, theology just means understanding or talking about God. It's not a it's not a, a complex word, really. And I put it to you that every Christian should have the most basic level of understanding of God, of Jesus, of the Holy Spirit, of the Trinity, of of creation, of salvation, of the Church, of sacraments, of heaven, and those are the topics that we're going to be covering. Because understanding God helps us to relate to Him better. And so those are the topics we're going to do. And I've been using this fantastic book by Alistair McGrath called uh, Theology, The Basics, which I highly recommend to you. You can buy it yourself from Kurong if you'd like to read it. It's not a very thick book. In fact, Alistair McGrath, he, he does a thick version, a, a really thick version of this one. This is the thin version, okay? <laughs> Remember when we were doing this subject years ago, it was about eight years ago, I did this subject called Intro to, Introduction to Theology, and we used a joke that this was the Theology for Dummies book. And then, um, then we got to some bits where we really were struggling with in that book and I realised I was the dummy. <laughs> I meant that in a fun way. Anyway, today we're talking about Jesus. Jesus is the central figure of our faith. And so it's essential that, you, that we have a basic understanding of the identity and the role of Jesus. If we're going to identify as Christians, you know, Christian, we should really be able to articulate that at a base level. Who is it that we are following? And it can be hard, particularly if you grew up in the church. Sometimes um, we don't actually spend time going into some of the deep understanding of the nature of Jesus. Christian leaders and theologians have spent a lot of time bringing together all the elements of the biblical witness to identify the significance of Jesus and who he is, you know, including the, the different titles that the New Testament gives him. What Jesus achieved and how that relates to his identity, which is important because his, his work also points to his identity, who he is, you know, his impact on the world and how the, the resurrection endorses all of those things about him. And as I say each week, you can't do this in one sermon, but I hope what we do cover today will be helpful for you. So today I want to look at this, the, the titles that the New Testament gives to Jesus. The first one is this, that Jesus is the Messiah. And I guess the first question is, what does Messiah actually mean? Now, Messiah actually comes from a Hebrew word that literally means the, the anointed one. You know, someone who was singled out for, for a special function. And the Greek version of the same meaning is the Christ. So when we say Jesus the Christ or Jesus Messiah, we're essentially saying the same thing. The Old Testament meaning of this world would mean someone you know, like, like David, perhaps, who was anointed for special purpose. But for the Jews in the New Testament, they were looking for that specific Messiah that was prophesied for so long. So when they, when they were talking about the Messiah, you know, they, they all had 
in their mind that that same person that was coming, that they were looking for. It had a sense of urgency because they were being oppressed under, under Roman occupation. So when Jesus arrived and declared you know, a new kind of kingdom was at hand, it didn't really align with all those hundreds of years of expectations. And this is important. Jesus refused to see himself as Messiah in, in, in that expectation that they had of what the Messiah was going to be. At no point during his ministry do we find any suggestion of violence against Rome, nor do we see him condone any kind of rebellion. But that, again, that's what was kind of expected was going to happen. This is probably why Jesus, you know, at first we'd say, why did he downplay his messiahship? You know, why did he often tell people, don't tell anyone about what just happened? As people started to discover who he was, it was keep it on the, on the lowdown for a while. It was because that expectation that they had would derail his, his real ministry and his real purpose. In fact, it's not until much later, you know, Jesus is brought before the high priest as a prisoner. You know, he really, that's at the moment, he just, he says, yeah, this is, this is who I am. He's not going to deny it. It's an important point. He kept his messiahship a secret until the point where no political or violent action could be you know, done in his name that could be associated with him. He was very much aware that if, if he was identified that way in the beginning, that expectation would perhaps overrun what he was really about. He couldn't accomplish those things. For the Jews to identify Jesus as the Messiah was a big deal. And it's at this point, it's obvious that the Messiah that the Scriptures had been prophesying, you know, it just wasn't what they expected. They would not have expected their Messiah to be ex- executed. As a criminal, in a shameful and powerless way, that really is flipping things upside down from expectations. And here's the thing, we too can claim Jesus as our Messiah because he's for each and every person here. You know, he, he really is the anointed one for us, came to earth to save us, to liberate us from sin. That was his ultimate aim. The big picture is redemption. For all people. The big picture is the liberation of our souls, the restoration of humanity. And the second title that Jesus is known as is the Son of, of God. And, and this is the one that people would probably say the most if you, was, if you were to survey people who was Jesus. Even though it's true that all people are children of God, in one sense of the word, the New Testament holds that Jesus is the Son of God. You know, there's a clear distinction between Jesus as the natural son of God and us followers as, as adopted sons and daughters. There's a very clear difference between that relationship. And again, this is where it became so difficult for the people of the time. They, they probably didn't have any issue with, with Jews calling God their father. It's, it's the claim that Jesus often made of this special relationship to the father that some took issue with. You know, the Pharisees in particular. A relationship so close as to make himself equal with God. You may hear people try to reduce Jesus to something less than what he is. 
Some claim that he was just a prophet, others that he was just this historical figure. You know, he was known as a good person with good preaching and he had followers and he did good works. Others say that maybe Jesus never even existed. You know, the people who tell you that are kind of ignorant, to be honest, because the, the number of historical records about his existence, both in and outside of the Bible, they prove otherwise Jesus was real. And the argument that Jesus never existed, it, it, it's, like I said, it comes from, from ignorance. Historically, we know he existed. Any half-decent historian is going to agree whether they're a Christian or not. We also know that he had a large following with claims and stories of miracles. We also know that he died on the cross, and we know that there was an empty tomb, and all of those things are, you can find outside of the Bible. You can find them in history. The Bible, which is also a trustworthy historical book, clearly identifies, though, who he is. And this is what John said towards the end of his gospel. These are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. The third title that Jesus has is Son of Man. This one can be a little bit confusing. You know, what, what does that actually mean? Have you ever wondered? What does Son of Man actually mean? How can Jesus be Son of God and also the Son of Man? And of course, we say, oh, by the way, when we say man, we're not being gender specific. We, we mean mankind or, or humankind. But often this term is just seen as the natural counterpart to Son of God. You know, it's a confirmation of the humanity of Christ, just like Son of God is, a, is an affirmation or confirmation of his divinity, because both of these things are true, and we're going to get into that a, a little bit later. But it's, that's a good ex, explanation, but there's much more to it. The scriptures give us further insight into this title of Jesus as Son of Man. So if, if you've ever kind of wondered... Where did that come from? You go all the way back to Daniel, 500 years earlier, to encounter that reference, son of man. Here's what Daniel says in chapter 7 from 13. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. And his rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. So when you're in New Testament times and you hear Jesus refer to himself as son of man, it actually meant something very significant because it pointed to that prophecy from Daniel 500 years earlier. So while it's true that son of man gives a strong meaning of unity with mankind and of his humanity, I think it's acceptable and important part of the meaning. It's, it's, it's full of significance that can be found in Daniel. Whether When we refer to Jesus as the Son of Man, we, we agree that he is the one that God has given authority, glory, and sovereign power over the earth, over the world. Son of Man is just as significant as Son of God. So I hope you're starting to see a pattern here because all these titles, while they carry different aspects of the nature of Jesus, they point towards something. 
Title four, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Everyone, let's affirm that together this morning. Yeah, Jesus is God, yes? Jesus is none other than God. There are at least 10 texts in the New Testament that specifically, explicitly say that about Jesus in this way. And many, many others that overtly point in that direction. So we're going to have a look at just three of them. And if you've ever talked to someone of a different faith uh, who tells you that there is no scripture that points to Jesus being God, pen and paper is a good idea right now. You can write these down. John chapter 1 verse 18. In fact, if you go back to the very beginning of John chapter 1, that the first few paragraphs make it abundantly clear. Verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Romans 9, Paul says this, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors, and Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned, human nature, and he is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. And then John again in 1 John 5, and we know that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God. Talking about the Son and his eternal life. And that's just a small sample. So let there be no mistake. The scriptures are clear that Jesus, the Christ, was divine. He is Emmanuel. God with us. If you ever talk to our friends, our Jehovah's Witness friends, who we love, and they, they don't agree with you on that point, start in John chapter 1, read from your Bible, and be very clear that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is Jesus. He raises this question then, was Jesus human or was he God? And the answer, it's an important doctrine of Christianity, is that he was both. The nature of Jesus was both, both of these things equally. And if you downplay either side of this identity of Christ, you change what the scriptures affirm about him and we can be in danger of misidentifying his true nature because we want to worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. In the early years of the church, there were some poor attempts at understanding the nature of Christ. Some saw Jesus as human, anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism and adopted and empowered to do his mission in, in that point. And this view is soundly rejected, mainly because of those scriptures we just read. But it was unbiblical for many reasons because it sees Jesus as, as created, you know, 2,000 years ago. But in fact, he has always been because he is God. Another doctrine was that Jesus was completely divine and his humanity was just like a, a supernatural appearance, like a trick in a, in a sense. And the problem with that is that his crucifixion actually would be nothing. It would have no effect. And again, it, it falls down in many other ways. There were other attempts that have been rejected, but it all came, down, came to a head in 451 AD at the Council of Chalcedon. 
And it was here that a majority of the world's theologians and leaders agreed that the totality of the Bible clearly pointed to Jesus as being fully human and fully God together. Now, of course, there's mystery involved in that. Of course, we can't fully comprehend it. But it's true, and it's important that we, that we understand. The incarnation is the doctrine of God on earth in fully human form. You know, he hurts with us. He, he cries with us. You know, he suffers with us. He experiences joy and love and parties and all of the emotions and feelings that we experience. The same as us, except for one thing, he was without sin. Until on the cross, he became sin. And through it all, he was still fully God. Number five is we call Jesus Lord. Jesus is Lord. And the word Lord has a dual meaning, not only in the New Testament, but, but also to us today in how we refer to him. Firstly, Lord is used as a title of respect when addressing someone. You know, the word is still used for people in the world today, a Lord. It's a title of respect. It's someone that, you know, we kind of elevate above us. They have authority in a sense. They're significant. This is an important meaning of the word Lord as it elevates Jesus to a position in your life over you. So when we call him Lord, the first part of that meaning is that he has authority over me. You know, I place myself under his authority and I submit to him. Secondly, and of much greater importance, is that the many passages in which Jesus is referred to as the Lord, generally when we use the words Jesus is Lord, we're actually referring to him as God. Now this is really interesting, doing the study on this particular title for Jesus. The Old Testament writers were reluctant to actually refer to God Directly, but when they did, when they wanted to reference him directly, they tended to use a cipher, which is four letters, sometimes transliterated into English as YHWH. And this group of letters lies behind the reference to God as Jehovah or Yahweh, which you would probably have heard. This particular name was used only to refer specifically to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember last week we talked about how in Old Testament times and in New Testament times and in still parts of our world today, um, when you talk about God, you've got to identify which God. I know we're talking about the true God, but in the world they see many gods in many nations. So it was important, even in the Bible, to clearly identify which God was being talked about. The name was specific to God and was never used for any other divine or angelic being you know, other like, unlike other Hebrew words for God. And that's important to remember. So when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew to Greek, the Greek word was kyrios or, or, or kyrios. I'm going with kyrios today. It was generally used to translate that sacred name of God in Greek, kyrios. So out of over 6,000 times that the sacred name of God is used in the Hebrew, the Greek word also came through over 6,000 times. When it was translated. So, this Greek word, kyrios, came to be an accepted way of referring specifically to the God we have revealed, who has revealed himself to Israel, Yahweh. Jews would not use this term to refer to anyone or anything else because to do so would be to imply that that person was divine, was God. I'm getting there, don't worry if you're trying to stay with me. 
Apparently, the Jews refused to use the word Kyrios for the Roman emperor. You know, he would see himself as God, but they wouldn't give him that title because it was specific. They wouldn't use that in their writing. Kyrios was, was reserved for God alone. And yet, the writers of the New Testament had no hesitation in using this sacred name and word when they referred to Jesus. And we read it as the Lord in our Bibles. I hope you stayed with me through that. When Paul used that term in referring to Jesus, he was very well aware of the implications and it was deliberate and an informed decision. Jesus has the status. Jesus is God and is addressed accordingly throughout our Bible. When we say Jesus is Lord, it means something significant. It means that Jesus is God and he has, he is my Lord. He has authority over me, and I've willingly submitted to him. Like John said at the end of his gospel, that there's so much more to say about Jesus. You know, he says right at the very end, all the books in the world couldn't contain what I need to say. And I've only given you 25 minutes. There are some other titles, Saviour, uh, we're going to look at salvation down the track. But Redeemer, Mediator, you know, Lamb of God. There's one that Rachel used this morning, which doesn't come back to me now, but I was thinking, there, there it is, there's another one. You probably can't think of it either. Living Water, yeah. We could go on and on and on, and, and, and maybe we should. But I want to conclude with a question for you, and it's a question that Jesus asked his disciples in Mark 8. He's, as they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say I am? And then he asked them, who do you say? Who do you say that I am? And church, this is the question I'd like for each one of you to consider this morning. Who, who do you say that Jesus is? In his famous book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, he made this point. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. And this is the foolish thing. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else... He would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. So the question is the most important question that you can answer in this lifetime. It's, the, it's not even the million-dollar question. Because the right answer is worth more than a million dollars. In fact, the value of getting this question right for you is worth more than the money and the riches that you can imagine. When we daydream... 
about being rich, that's nothing compared to getting who Jesus is right in your life. The answer to this question in your response is more important than, than a school and uni exam. Those things are important. Not saying they're not. Don't take that out of this sermon. But the, <laughs> the answer is more important than getting those things right. It's more important than an inve- investment seminar or a healthy living program or the, the job interview of your dreams. This is the question and your response. This has eternal significance for you. It's the question that either brings you into the light or leaves you in the dark. It's the question that means a relationship with the creator God and eternity with him or an eternity without him. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Most of you have probably answered this question at some point in your life. But today, if you have, I want you to revisit it. If you haven't, I want you to ask it. If you've answered it before, ask the question again. Things change. We get complacent. We take God for granted. We get busy with life. We forget what we've learned about him and what he has done for us. And we forget the significance of that moment when Jesus revealed himself to us for the first time. Do you remember? Others of you may have never answered this question before, and today I I hope you do, I ask you to. Who do you say that Jesus is? I hope you've seen in the, the scriptures today who he is. And as Lewis says, you have to respond to that. We have to respond. Romans 10 says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You say saved from what? Saved from the consequence of our sin. As Jesus says, you'll perish. That means, this verse means that you willingly say out loud that Jesus is your Lord. And this morning we've realized that that's significant. It's saying that Jesus is God and he is my master. Second, you have to believe in your heart. That's what Paul says in Romans there. Yes, believe the truth about Christ being raised from the dead. Because that affirms that he is who he said he is. But giving someone your heart means that you're committing who you are. It means I'm believing with my soul. I'm giving my soul, my life to him. It means I'm willing to turn from ways, my old ways, to be a follower of Jesus in his ways. It means asking God, Lord, I'm sorry for all I've done. Forgive me. Be made right with God. That's the way. It's a new life. It's a new way. It's an adoption into a new family. You too can be called a son or a daughter of God. Adopted in. It's a promise of eternity with God. It's a promise of his Holy Spirit in us so that we can follow and worship him the way he wants us to with the power he gives And so I say, will you do that today? Who do you say Jesus is?
Can you say he's your Messiah and your Lord? Let's close our eyes and pray together. I just invite you to, um, to bow your heads and to spend a moment here with, with Jesus. And if this morning you were ready to move in, you just have to ask Jesus. You can do it in quietly in your heart. Come into my life and be my Lord. Acknowledge your need for him. Believe that he is the Messiah the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, that He is God. Believe in your heart. And this morning, commit to Him. You can just pray a little prayer in your heart. God, I commit to You. Jesus, I make You Lord over me. Forgive me, Lord. And today I will follow you. And church, if you're here and you, you've, you've been a follower of Jesus, you can say who he is. Recommit it this morning. Jesus, you are the center of it all. You are the center of my life. Where you're not, Lord, forgive me. Move in there. Take control. Take hold. You are above all things. You are above my possessions and my stuff and my, um, my holidays and my jobs and my friends. And you are above it all. You are worthy of that, Jesus. We commit to you today. We commit this church to you, God. It's not here for our glory. It's for yours, Lord Jesus. This church is for the glory of Jesus. We are created, Lord, to be in relationship with you. Where we've failed, God, forgive us. And we receive that forgiveness today. Thank you for your grace. So, Lord, as we finish today, I just pray, God, for a new season. I pray, Lord, that we don't leave here the same as we walked in. I pray it's not just about a cup of coffee afterwards and a short chat and out into the world. Pray, I pray, Lord, that it changes now. It changes us. You change us, Lord. Please, we submit ourselves to you. We surrender to you everything. Take us, Lord, and use us. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Fill us afresh today. Fill us, Holy Spirit. Fill us, Holy Spirit.
Let us overflow with thanksgiving. Let us overflow with your joy. Let us overflow with your good deeds. Let us overflow with the, the fruit that you give us this week, Lord. Let us be the walk in the light and be the light. Because we follow Jesus. My Redeemer. The beautiful name, the wonderful name, and the powerful name of Jesus.